Lord, we just praise you for just the time that you've given us and every breath, not knowing when you will call us home and that we may follow the example of Jonathan and the life that he lived and the people that he touched. We praise you for him and praise you that uh, he's with you and we praise you that he's leaving a legacy behind. Just pray for comfort for the family, for those that have been touched by him, that they may be comforted knowing that He's with you and uh, has completed the ministry that you had given him. This morning also we desire to get a glimpse of the ministry you've given us, a glimpse of what you have for us from your word, and we desire clarity of thought, clarity of mind, to be able to focus on what you have revealed in your word so that we may be better equipped to minister to others. So we commit our time this morning in Jesus' name. Well, the Word is, in fact, our comfort because it does reveal to us what we should focus on and the truth, and hopefully we can focus on that this morning, particularly Romans chapter 7. And the focus of Romans 7, especially the early verses here, is on the law. The word namas, which is the Greek word translated law in most versions, occurs eight times in these first six verses, 23 times throughout chapter 7. So it is the major focus and also the major issue in terms of living the Christian life. So what I want to do today is give you a little, not only background, but a little perspective on the law. There's a lot of confusion within the body of Christ. Certainly unbelievers don't have a clue concerning significance of the law, especially in the church age, the place of the law amongst believers. So most of what we'll deal with today is dealing with this concept of law. And the essence of these two verses is a distortion of the law or distorting of the law, not only in our perception, but also in terms of how it functions, how it functions in terms of the person that has been released from the law. That's the focus of the first six verses. So we're not going to get too far into 7 and 8, mainly because I'm going to spend a little bit more time giving some background on the law. And obviously the law was an issue in Rome, and the people in Rome and the believers there wrestled with the law. In fact, it was more probably more of a problem than it is for us today because they were closer to it, and things weren't as clearly spelled out in Scripture. They didn't have all of the Scriptures that we have today. So there was some confusion. Paul is trying to clarify that. He said a lot of negative things about the law. So what I want to focus in on is some other things that he said about the law today that give us more of a balance, in other words, a complete picture of the law. So we're in the section dealing with sanctification, following the section on Justification, chapter 6 through 8, and we're obviously in the middle, chapter 7. We've been spending our time looking at the principles for sanctification, or another, or a theological word for the Christian walk, Christian life, what it's all about. It's a life set apart for a purpose. That's sanctification. That's chapter 6. He lays out principles. We developed nine specific ones contained within there. And we're in chapter 7 where the principles will continue. 
but the focus is more on issues that we will face in the Christian life that will derail that walk. So I call that problems. Keep alliteration going here. And once we are aware of the problems, then we're more inclined to avail ourselves of the power that is available. It's not through obedience. It's not through do's and don'ts. It's not through the law. It's not through self-effort. That's chapter 7. Chapter 8 focused on the power of the Holy Spirit. We've already talked a little bit about that in chapter 6, and we'll see a little bit more of that in chapter 7, but that's the focus of chapter 8. So principles, problems, power. So in the problems, uh, first 14 verses focuses on the law, and the law, the, the main principle there, the law cannot sanctify. Paul makes a lot of comments relating to the law and its inability to sanctify. The main problem is a mis, that's a misuse of the law, a distorted use of it. So we're in that portion. We saw last time and we'll complete, go back actually. We saw the first six verses. We are released from the law. And I don't think we pay enough attention to the, the significance of the age and the period of time. We call that a dispensation in which we live in. But just imagine trying to live and pleasing God in the Old Testament. What did you have? All you had was the law. All you had were the standards. All you had was what God said, this is what pleases him. But you did not have the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that? I don't think we appreciate it because we kind of take it for granted. So we're living in a different time frame, a different dispensation, and we are released from the law because we have a new way of dealing with living the life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, he's not going to get to that yet because he has to lay out the perspective on the law. So we'll pick up there and look at the last part, particularly verse 4, just to remind you. We looked at this last time. Therefore, my brethren, and what he did in the first three verses, he gave an illustration. And I spent a lot of time explaining. He's not dealing with marriage. So don't read into all of the concepts of marriage. He just wants you to draw one principle from the illustration. When a person dies, when a woman is married to a man and her husband dies, she's released from the law. That's the point he's making there. So she's no longer tied to him. She's released. That's the point. In fact, there's a little bit of an inconsistency in the illustration, but like all illustrations, all illustrations are not intended to be utilized at every single point. And Paul is drawing one point here. He's not teaching on marriage. He's using marriage as an illustration. And then in verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also, just like a wife, When her husband dies, she is no longer in that contract. She's released from that marriage contract. My brethren, you also were made to die to law. In other words, we experienced a death. And because there's a death, there's a break in that covenant (laughs) relationship. But instead of the wife dying, the husband died. That's the illustration. But now he's bringing it to us. We died. You see, it's a little inconsistent here. We died, but the point is, there's a release from the law. 
So you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, alluding to the crucifixion. His body hung on a cross, and he just alludes to it because we saw a little more detail in chapter 6 when it talks about us being baptized or united with Christ in his death and burial and then resurrection. He's going to come back to those as well. So through the body of Christ, through what he experienced on the cross, so that you might be joined to another. He's carrying this analogy now. The woman now is released from that husband, preferably her first husband. When he died, now she is free to remarry. Part of the illustration. No longer part of that old covenant relationship. Now she can enter into a new relationship. So also, we are joined to another. We are joined to another relationship, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this union with Christ, we saw in chapter 6, 6, 6-3, we're baptized into his death. We spent two Sundays on the concept of baptism, because when we think of baptism, we think of dunking in a tank. So we had to look at the background, we had to look at the New Testament teaching, and we had to look at the details to realize that in chapter 6, you stay dry. No water baptism there. He's talking about the basic idea of uniting to something or being identified with something. And in fact, in reality, we have been joined, we have been united with Christ in his death. From God's perspective, when he died on the cross, it was the same as if we were crucified with him. He paid the penalty for us, and we experienced the release from that sin experience. Okay? So we're baptized into his death, and then he says if we're baptized into his death, so also his burial, in other words, the whole experience, including his resurrection. Therefore, the old self is crucified. Notice the themes of dying throughout 6 and 7. So the old self is crucified. Who we are, or who we were in Adam, that's what he's stressing, chapter 5 and on, who we are in Adam That is no longer operative. We've died. Not physically. Remember we talked about death being a more comprehensive death that includes many other aspects. Not the physical aspect or at least the ceasing of breathing. So we're crucified and as a result we're justified from sin. In other words, we're acquitted. New American Standard translates it freed. But it's basically the dikaiasune word that we've looked at in a lot of detail in Romans. That's 6, 7. So that in verse 8, we have new life in him. Because we're joined to him, we have that life, that resurrection life in him. 6.19, now we have a new slavery. When we were in that passage, we said that uh, we never escaped slavery. The issue is not escaping it. The issue is who is the master. And in one case, the master is sin and death. And in the other case, for the believer, is a benevolent, a good, a sovereign, a holy, a wonderful master that cares for us, that meets all of our needs. And he calls upon us to obey him as a master. So we have a new slavery, 619. In fact, there's several verses in there. And a new marriage, which we looked at last time in verse 4. That's where we focused last four a little bit in this new relationship with a new 
husband. And we are the bride. In other words, the church is the bride of Christ. But a break had to take place. A death had to take place. And that's the illustration in terms of a break that we have with a covenant that pertained to a people in a particular dispensation. And now, verse 6, we'll get to it in a moment. Now we have new power or fruitfulness in this new relationship. So the Christian life is not just fire insurance from escaping the penalty of sin and hell. It's a new relationship and it's intimate. It's like a marriage relationship. There's contact, there's relationship, there's interaction, but it also has a purpose. There's usefulness and that usefulness is to bear fruit. Just like in a marriage, you produce children and grandchildren, etc. So also in this new relationship, we can bear spiritual children and nourish them and encourage them and have grandchildren as well, spiritual grandchildren. So that's the union in Christ. And the last part of verse 5 here, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, this is a negative, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So no matter what, we're producing fruit. There's a product, no matter how we live, but there's only two options. One is death. Remember in this passage, death in this more comprehensive sense. He's not talking about eternal death. He's not talking about ceasing to breathing death. He's talking about death in all of its components. Intellectual, relational, emotional, moral, all of these aspects. And certainly separation. It's separation from all of these aspects in terms of who God created us to be. Separation from him. Bearing fruit for death. So it doesn't produce anything that has life in it. Anything that is lasting. Anything that is eternal. That's the old way of life. And then in verse verse 6, in verse 6, he's going to give us the alternative to the negative. But look at the word fruit. I haven't stressed that word, but we've already encountered it a couple of times in chapter 6. And the reason you probably missed it is New American Standard doesn't translate it fruit, but it's the same word. So let's take a closer look at that before we move on to verse 7. The unbeliever, verse 5, tells us he bears fruit, but it's death. Death in his thinking, all of his thoughts, all of his ideas are dead in terms of eternal spiritual things. All of his emotions are trapped in deadness. All of his relationships are non-spiritual. They're dead. They're, they don't have eternal effect in a positive sense. They have negative effects. Every area of our experience and even physically, we are dying cell by cell. We, we die day by day, continue to breathe, but still we're dying. So the unbeliever bears fruit. Only two alternatives. The believer can bear fruit in character. Let's look these up. In fact, I've got a lot of verses that we're going to look up today, so I'm going to need a lot of readers. Who wants to do Matthew 12, K. David? And in 6, 21, 22, I'll read that one since I've got candy. You want to do Galatians 5? And Romans 1, 13. Connie's got that one. Matthew 12, 33. Different areas where we can bear fruit, basically, as believers. In terms of our character, in terms of who we are. David, you got that one? Matthew. Make the tree good, 
and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt, and his fruit corrupt, the tree is known by his fruit. Similar illustration that Jesus uses, bearing fruit, two alternatives, bad fruit from a tree that's bad, bad character, in other words, the alternative, good fruit from a regenerated character, you might say. And then uh, 621, this is the passage where, the reason I'll read it is I'll show you where the word fruit is, but he's talking about change of life. Remember in chapter 6, sanctification, renewal. And in verse 21, therefore what benefit, see the word benefit there? Greek word, karpos, karpos, which basically is translated in most places as fruit. So what Fruit in terms of character or life or Christianity do you have here? What benefit? What benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? What benefit did you derive in the old life? Or what fruit? For the outcome of those things is death. Again, same thing he's stressing throughout. And then verse 22, but now here's the alternative. And he constantly goes back and forth. 22, but now having been freed or justified from sin and enslaved, remember we stressed a new slavery, there's the verb form, enslaved to God, you derive your fruit, your benefit. New American Standard translates it. Your fruit resulting in sanctification, in other words, renewal of your life. And that's a moment-by-moment thing. We've talked about this progressive aspect of it, day-by-day. But that's part of the fruit that I think is stressed in this passage. Character and development, Christ-likeness, more and more conformed to his image. And then uh, lifestyle, Galatians 5, 22-23, how we respond to different circumstances, Emotionally as well. There's a lot of emotion in there. You got that one? Nancy, read it loud. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. The law is not a... Okay. So, karpas again in that passage. Same word. Fruit. And this is the fruit of those that know Christ. And chapter 8 is going to stress that outworking of the Holy Spirit within us, and here it's going to produce something that is visible, actually, something that is experiential, and a whole list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc., self-control, etc. So it's going to result in lifestyle, not just character, but it's going to work itself out in the way that we live. Now, in Romans 1.13, Paul is referring to himself, and he uses the word karpos there. We won't look that one up, just for the sake of time. But he talks about the fruit of his ministry, and he's talking about believers. In other words, converts. Evangelism, you might say. So, anytime that you lead somebody to Christ, you have given birth. You have borne fruit to somebody that has been dead, and now you have been part of the instrument in bringing them life of Jesus Christ. So, but now, and there's one more on that slide, we'll get to it in verse 6, but now we have been released from the law. That's the whole point. Point of the illustration, the woman is released from the husband when he dies. We died, therefore we are released from the law. 
having died to that by which we were bound. That looks back again, but that's the heart of chapter 6. We died when? 2,000 years ago we died. Can you imagine that? We died on the cross. Only 93. Well, 2098. Cheating me. Several years. Having died to that by which we were bound. And that's also a theme. We, we can't release ourselves. Self-effort or through law or any other ways. It's through Jesus Christ. So that, and here we go, we serve Back to the slavery imagery, we serve in newness of spirit, and he's expanded that as well in chapter 6. This newness of spirit is resurrection life, and that's the topic of chapter 8. He's going to expand that, but already he's giving us the alternative. No, I'm, yeah, I actually have a question. Um, so, regarding the Old Testament, obviously, they were saved the same way we were saved. Faith in the redeemed. They had a different... Obviously, they didn't have as much nation who it is, but it was still by faith. Yes. By grace through faith. Yes. But they followed the law and were free from the law. Were they? But they had to follow the law, but they weren't saved from it. Correct. Right? <laughs> I'm looking for the question. Okay. I'm just trying to grapple. So they're, they're saying that, were they bound by the law, would you say? Yes. They were in a covenant relationship. The Mosaic Law, you could call it the Mosaic Covenant, <coughs> were bound to the law. The Jewish people and the proselytes as well, the, those that committed to God, they were bound to it, and it was a covenant. In fact, the commandments were the stipulations of that covenant. Just like your mortgage, you have you, you pay every month. It's part of the stipulations of the covenant until you run out the term. The commandments of the law, all 613 of them, they were bound to obey them. That was part of the covenant. And David if they didn't obey them, there'd be consequences. That's right. Also stipulations, curses, David. I think the Paul's, what Paul's also referring to is that Christ is the fulfillment of that law. We'll get to that. You're always, you're always one step ahead of me. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get to the law in a moment. We serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, that's just a way that Paul uses to refer to the written code, the letter. In other words, the stipulations, the specifics, the actual issues of obedience, basically. But we serve in newness of the spirit. We're released from that. Released, remember we talked about that, not to do whatever we want to, but now with new power to be able to serve in newness of life. So to add to our fruit slide here, it also includes ministry or bearing fruit. Somebody got Philippians 1.22, and then I'll remind you of the passage we're in here. In fact, we don't even need to look it up because we just looked, looked at it. Connie, you got it? Philippians one twenty two. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I... Okay, Paul, using himself as an example, this is what he endeavors. He endeavors his ministry to bear fruit. It'll produce converts. It'll produce growth in converts, discipleship, encouragement to the body of Christ. And in chapter 7... 
Paul is applying it to us. Now we live in newness of life and we bear fruit as well. So that brings us to chapter 7, verse 7, this distorting of the law. Because what he said, you might get a wrong impression. You might say, well, Paul must be really down on the law. And the law basically is not as good as it's all cracked up to be. The Jews were totally out of line or whatever thoughts you might come up with. So now he's going to give us a perspective on the law. We won't have time to go through all of the verses, but I want to at least introduce you to the concept of law. And this will help us to understand 7 through 12 when we come back, if we come back, (laughs) several weeks from now in terms of uh, a Roman study. So uh, he's going to deal with this distorting of the law. And he's going to raise this issue. In other words, well, what's the the story about the law? Is it sinful? Is it sin? And notice he says, what shall we say then? In light of we're released from the law. Yay, yay, we're released from the law because it's so bad. Is that what we come to the conclusion of? And then he asks the question, is the law sin? Is there a problem with the law? So what's going on here? And again, he says, may it never be, and we've seen that over and over and over. He'll raise an issue, and he answers it with an emphatic, absolutely not. Or the way I kind of paraphrase it, are you crazy to even think such a thing? May it never be. Then he goes on, on, and in our outline, he goes on, he raises the issue in 7a, and now he's going to lay out, at least one of the major purposes of the law. So let's try to understand a little bit of the background of the law, and then we'll talk, if we have time, a little bit about the purpose of the law. And this will also give us the purpose of the law for us today. So we don't abandon entirely the law, because the law still has a purpose. And it has a purpose universally over any dispensation, you might say. And the problem is, is we we get distorted and sidetracked when we misuse the law, misuse it. In other words, it can be misused. And that's the whole idea in chapter 7. So let's look at 7, 7b. On the contrary, so in other words, it's not sin. In fact, it's not even negative. It's just that we use it in a wrong way, and just like a mechanic or a carpenter, you have a variety of tools. Certain tools do certain things, and if you don't have a hammer, you try to use another tool to hammer something, you're misusing that tool because it's not designed to be a hammer, and you can damage the tool or you can damage the piece that you're trying to hammer. Similar with the law, it has a particular function that God has designed, and there are some other areas that it's not designed to do, okay? So when we use it or distort it in that way, then you can expect negative effects. But in itself, in fact, he's leading up, and let's just skip ahead to verse 12, because what he's going to say in verse 12 is kind of the conclusion here. So then, notice a kind of a concluding introduction there. The law is holy, not sin. The law is holy and the commandment is holy. The specifics 
Now, he's talked about a specific commandment. We won't get into it too much today, but we'll look at it. The Tenth Commandment. So he's saying the commandment is holy. That's holy. In other words, it's set apart and it, it is not tainted by sin in any, in any way. The problem is not the law. And he goes on and righteous. The problem is not with the law. And good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with how we are trying to use the law. So that's where he's leading us. We obviously won't get that far today. So on the contrary, so let me give you a background on law and impress you with the value of the law. The law was significant. The law was the center of Jewish life. The law was a gift. It was given from Sinai. And let's look up these passages, and I'm going to need a lot of readers here again, and primarily the law in the Old Testament. And these are the main passages in the Old Testament that show the value and the goodness and the holiness and the righteousness of the law. And I'm going to use the imagery of Sinai there, at least the uh, traditional site called Jebel Musa. You probably have an idea of Musa that's related to what? Moses. Moses starts with an M. Traditional Sinai there. Okay. Let's start with, not only is it a gift of God, and by the way, it's gracious as well, but it's inerrant. Who's got that one? It's elevated. You got the psalm, uh, okay, and Connie's got Isaiah. It's priceless. Who's got that one? Ellen. Jacob, why don't you do Psalm 119? In fact, both 72 and then 9 and 11. It's purifying. It's comprehensive. Deuteronomy, the center of the Old Testament. Notice what it says. Nancy's got that one. And there's many where it talks about the law being a blessing. Many, even in Psalm 119, since you're going to be there, Jacob, I'm going to let you read those. And Dwayne, not the last verse, but the last paragraph. This concludes the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 4, and it's remembered, and you might think that the law precedes Malachi by centuries, and still, in the Old Testament, this is how the Old Testament concludes. Dwayne's got it. All right. Inerrant. And I'm going to interrupt you a few times here. Do you want to do it, David? The law of the Lord is perfect. Perfect. Are there any imperfections in the law? None. None. So implies inerrancy. Keep reading. Does that mean all three hundred thousand whatever all that law is perfect? The law that is not extra I think from Genesis one one to Malachi four probably seven. In that broad sense. Keep reading. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Sure. Any insecurity, any doubts, any unsureness uh, there. <laughs> trying to think of another word there. Making wise the simple. Okay. The statutes of the Lord are right. Are right. Is there anything wrong? In other words, any errors in the law? Any errors? No, it's inerrant. Okay, keep reading. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Pure. Any impurity. Anything that can detract. Anything that can clean. diminish it. Enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Okay, it's true. No errors. Implying inerrancy. That's the law. 
That's the perspective on law. Namas. Well, it's a Hebrew word, but Greek word is namas. It's elevated, and there's several verses that we could look there. Who's got that one? Connie, I think you, is that you? The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Okay? He will mag, God is gonna magnify it. God <laughs> honors it. And there's even another one, we ought to read Ecclesiastes 12.13. Once we'll come back to that one. Uh, once you do that one, Terry, we'll come back to Ecclesiastes 12.13, where it's also elevated there. In other words, after everything that Solomon has tried, the very last, I think second to last, or last verse of Ecclesiastes, he's tried everything. He's owned everything. He's experienced everything. You got it already? Yeah. You know, all that has been heard, Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Okay, this is it. Elevate it. Put it at a high place. You can try everything else, but when everything is said and done, the basic concept, obey the law. I was wondering, um, reportedly, the original John D. Rockefeller in the one was asked once, well, how much money does it take to make, uh, to, to make a millionaire happy? You remember what he's reported to have said? Probably one more dollar, one more yeah, a little. He said a little bit more. <laughs> yes. And there's all kinds of things that are exciting, but they're wonderful, but they just don't give me <coughs> satisfaction. <coughs> that new car I was wanted, the job I was wanted. Yep. Uh, right. And what Solomon's saying is the bottom line is the only thing is what God has said. In other words, the law. It's priceless. couple of verses. Psalm 19.10. Ellen's got that one. They are much more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than... Okay, so the law and the context is pre-prior verses. Law, priceless, simmer. Psalm 119.72. Jacob? The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver. Okay, priceless. It's also purifying, Psalm 119. Can you skip back to verse 9 and then verse 11? How can a young man keep his way pure according to your word I have treasured in my heart? And by the way, in Psalm 119, he uses at least 10, maybe even more, synonyms for law. And that's one of them there. Verse 11. Oh, that was your word I have treasured in my heart. That I may not sin again. Okay, so it purifies us. Oh, that was verse 11. Okay. And then the comprehensive passage, Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, that every Jewish boy was instructed to memorize. Most Jews would have it by heart. Who's got it? This is the command, the statutes and ordinances the Lord your God has made you. There's some of the synonyms for the law. Statutes, in other words, the specific statutes, the specific Stipulations and ordinances. Go ahead. So that you may follow them in the land you are about to enter. Remember, they are not in the land yet. They're preparing in Deuteronomy. They're preparing to enter the land. This is what's going to govern everything. And it's going to be comprehensive. Keep reading. Sorry. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes. Notice the comprehensiveness. All your life. All your activities, all the commandments, keep reading. Your son and your grandson, so that you may have... All your descendants. <laughs> so that you may have a long life. So you can have a long life. 
Com- comprehensive life. Keep reading. I would just like to throw in here um, that there, this is a prayer in Hebrew called the Yahavta, and we synagogues repeat this yes. regularly. Done in a and it's it's a heart of the Old Testament. It's, it's, yep. It's, uh, it's so if you can hear the heart of God. And yeah. Teach your children about me. Don't ever. Yep. <laughs> Keep reading. Comprehensive in terms of benefits and how it's going to benefit you. The law. This is the law. Because the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. That's also a prayer. <laughs> Shema. Yeah. The Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. In other words, it's all-encompassing, comprehensive in terms of your attention and your devotion. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to you. Talk about them when you sit in your house and you walk along the road, when you lie down <coughs> and when you get up. Comprehensive in all of your activities, getting Bind up, going to bed, walking around. Find them as a sign on your hand, a symbol on your Write them on the door of your house. How can the law be sin? Uh, absolutely not. It is comprehensive to the people that are under it. It's a blessing. And just a few passages or several in Psalm 119. In fact, you need to read the whole thing and you elevate. The whole focus of Psalm 119 is the law and the benefit and the blessing. Before you read it, Nancy has a comment. I, I just have a comment, a quick comment about Psalm 119. You know, I did a study on just that. All I did all the verbs, and it was startling to me how much God had to do for me so that I could follow his law. Very good. Very good. Great. Great insight there. You got it? Jacob? 130, 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimony as much as in all riches. Oh, meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. shall not forget your it brings rejoicing, it brings happiness, contentment. Deal bountifully with your servant. I live in your word. Open my eyes that I may your law. Okay, wonderful things are going to come out of the law. Other blessings, and there's other verses as well. And then almost the last verse of the whole Old Testament, Malachi 4 4. Get that one, Dwayne? Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him for all Israel. Remember the law. This is at the end of the Old Testament, the end of the canon. The laws given hundreds of years earlier, the last words of the law is to remember the law. So that's the value of the law. We shouldn't diminish it. We shouldn't disregard it. We shouldn't treat it lightly. But by the New Testament, by the time of the New Testament, the law had been distorted in many ways. And I've just got a few here. The law was made into an idol. The law was worshipped, not necessarily obeyed. It was put on a pedestal, but not made part of their experience. It was made as an idol. In fact, the scrolls themselves were almost worshipped. Scrolls that contained the law. Uh, Don't bother me with obeying it, but I will reverence those scrolls. Also, the law was externalized. And that was the main problem in the first century that Jesus dealt with. 
it was reduced down to legalism and to the extent that a person could observe it or obey it in that external way, that was what they had reduced the law to. This is what Jesus corrects in the Sermon on the Mount to some extent, where he says, you've heard, or the ancients have said, thou shalt not murder, takes a commandment. And what does he say about murder? If you're angry with your brother, it's like murder. What he's saying is the law is not just the external, the end product, but it goes all the way to where murder begins. It begins in the heart. And that was the intent from the very beginning. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy, there's lots of passages that speak of the circumcision of the heart and a heart response, not just an external response. So the Pharisees and the people that Jesus dealt with, the scribes, they have externalized the law and Jesus deals with them. They have distorted the law. Isn't that still our same struggle? Our same struggle. That's part of chapter 7. Exactly. So if the law was externalized and it was reduced to legalistic standards and the standards themselves were lowered to a human level such that, oh, okay, if I just do this checklist, check off the boxes on a superficial level, then I'm pleasing God. That's legalism. It's not true obedience. But it's fulfilled in Christ. Here's where David was talking about. And the key passage there, I don't have it up there, but Matthew 5, 17 and 18. I came not to abolish the law, remember that passage? But to fulfill it. So many of the stipulations of the law anticipated fulfillment by Messiah, particularly the sacrificial system. And when he came, he fulfilled those aspects of the Mosaic law such that they are completed, you might say. They're fulfilled. Now, there's aspects of the law that are universal and transcend time. Those continue, but the feasts, the sacrificial system, are fulfilled in Christ. That's why we're no longer under the law. That's why we are released from the law, because that portion is fulfilled. Another problem that the first century Jews had was they were making the law do things that it was never designed. And it became a yoke. Somebody look up Deuteronomy 27, 26. got it? Jeremy's got it. How about Acts 15, 10? David, you got it? And what Romans 6 and 7 is emphasizing, we are in a different dispensation, a different time frame. <clears throat> We're no longer under a mosaic economy, a mosaic covenant. Jesus Christ fulfilled the aspects of it that pertain to Israel and look forward to those that would be believers in Christ. Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed if you don't obey them. You're under a curse. You're under a burden. And in the Jerusalem Council, remember these are primarily Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. What do we do with the law now? Uh, And how do we utilize the law in terms of Gentiles? We make them obey the law. They had our church council to settle this issue once and for all. And they said, no, 
the Jews are not to be circumcised. They're not to, they're not under the law anymore. And there's a little statement in there that speaks of, we, we're not even able to obey the law. We as Jewish people, because it's like a yoke that we can't obey. So Acts 15.10, going back up to verse 9. Good. But no difference between us and them, purifying our hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? So throughout Jewish history, the Jews were not able to obey the law in its intended way. Even Old Testament saints, and certainly none in the first century. So why do we want to put this on the Gentiles? We couldn't do it. And if you keep reading, there's basically a new dispensation. And that's what Romans 6 and 7 is dealing with. And now he gets into the purpose, and I'll just introduce it, and we'll pick up when we come back. There's a purpose for the law that God intends, and a purpose here and now. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. We're released from it. So we can eat pork. We can can skip the Sabbath. (laughs) We can work on the Sabbath even. We can, uh, we're free. We're, we're not under that covenant in terms of its civil specific requirements in its ceremonial aspects as well. But the law still has a function. We still don't kill one another. We, we, we still want to respond to God from a heart response and there's universal things here. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. That was the main purpose of the law in the Old Testament, and it continues to be the main pur- one of the main purposes of the law. Okay, It is to show that we can't keep it. That was the key, to show Jewish people you can't please God by trying to keep the law. And it was to point to the one who would make the ultimate sacrifice and the one through whom now they can have a relationship that would satisfy the law. So it anticipates Messiah. David? It just strikes me as describing the law and how beautiful and how wonderful the precepts of God and how all-encompassing it is, but yet it's incomplete. God says, I have something even more beautiful. Right. And Romans 8 is going to tell us it's not by observing the law, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in fact, the beginning of verse of chapter 8 talks about obeying the law in the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we fulfill the law by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit gives us power to do what the law calls us to do. So real quickly, just in conclusion here, there are several purposes, and we'll expand this when we come back. The law, one of the purposes is to reveal God's nature. What is God like? What does holiness look like? It's also a revelation of God's standards. What does God expect of his people? Perfection, basically. Mm-hmm. It's a revelation, and that's the focus of uh, chapter 6 of Romans. It reveals sin. And what Paul's going to emphasize when we get into those verses there, 7 and 8 through 12, the commandment itself made Paul, and he's using himself as an example, aware of how far short he fell. And the commandment of coveting is the one that struck his heart, and that's the one that he is expounding in the passage. It revealed that he, even though in his mind as an unbeliever, 
thought that he was obeying the law. He, he called himself blameless in Philippians. In other words, in terms of the standards, at least the externals, he had all the boxes checked. But when he realized, uh-oh, it goes down deeper into my heart, sin, he was made aware of sin. So it's a revelation of sin. And in the Old Testament, the law was the means by which people maintained a relationship with God, the sacrificial system. It was like 1 John 1, 9, confessing your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Sacrificial system kept fellowship with Jewish people. And it was the way that God, I call, I'm using alliteration here, the R's, I use, say, the rule of God. It was the covenant that basically regulated all of the functioning of the nation. And those aspects we are released from as well. We're not under the Mosaic covenant. Okay, does that help you? In terms of... Could we add to that list to say that reveals the need for a savior? Mm -hmm. Yeah. A need to make a payment for that sin by the sacrificial system. Yes. That's good. That's a good, very good point, Jacob. Very good. Excellent. teach next week? <laughs> That's my one point. <laughs> That's it. That's good. Closing thought here. We're not under the stipulations of the law. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant, but it still has value for us today. The law serves a purpose for us today, and it can show us what sin is like. You want to close for us, Jacob, since you uh, had such an insightful thought there. Father, I just thank you for this time that we gather with each other and with with your word. Elevate it in our hearts and our minds, but also keep it in everything that we do. Help make it, internalize it, but also grace and forgiveness for me. Thank you for the only thing I stated. Amen.